find Acts chapter 23 in your Bible. We are nearing the end of Acts. It is so close, yet so far away. But we are, we are getting there. We're kind of at a point in the book of Acts where we can move a little faster because we're, we're kind of hearing the same thing. Similar things are happening in Paul's life, and we can mention them and look at other things. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to go through the first page of the notes, then I want to read the text, then I want to go through the second page of the notes. So let's start on the notes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through the narrative. I'm going to point out some things that I want you to see and hear when I read it. So, first thing, Acts 23, 1 through 5, in your notes, it says, mistakes, insults, and acknowledgments. This is another opportunity for us to see Paul lose his temper a little bit, make an error, but then we also see him immediately acknowledge his mistake when somebody calls him on it. And a another opportunity, as we've talked on a few occasions, seeing Paul as human, really a lot more like us than we would imagine on the surface. So A, the high priest wrongly commanded Paul to be struck. So we're going to read that the high priest didn't like what Paul said, and so he commanded people standing around him to, to strike him on the face, whatever that means. I don't know if it's a hand slap, a backhand, a punch in the nose. I don't know what that is. But commanded him to be struck. And the interesting thing is, is that that was against the rules of the Sanhedrin. It was against the, the Jewish rules that they were supposed to be upholding. And so Paul called him on it, which wasn't necessarily the wrong thing. But Paul spoke and he insulted him. He called him, a, a, called him whitewashed. Um, we'll read that in a minute. But called him a hypocrite, if you will. So be in your notes, Paul, Paul wrongly responds with an angry insult. And, and what he got called on was that he was speaking to the high priest. And he said, well, I didn't know that. You are correct. I'm not supposed to talk like that to the high priest. That was the acknowledgement. So we're going we're gonna to read about that. We're going to see that interaction. It's just a very short Five, five verses. In the next set of verses, Acts 23, 23, 6 through 10, Paul's enemies lose control fighting among themselves. Now this is new, and it is interesting. We have the Sadducees and the Pharisees gathered together in the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling religious body in, in Israel. They're gathered. This trial has been set up by the Roman commander, he basically said, if, well, if we can't try you and question you, I'm going to send you back to the Jews. They'll question you. We're going to watch. And then if there's a reason to arrest you, we'll arrest you. So he sets up this trial. Uh, the, the, the thing that we just talked about happened. There's the insults, and this goes on. And then Paul says, hey, you know what? The reason I'm really here is because I believe in the resurrection. And, and my testimony involves angels and, and things like this. And he caused the Pharisees and the Sadducees to fight amongst each other. So the whole thing got out of control. And while they were fighting with each other, then the Roman person, the Roman in charge, takes him away because he feared that it was going to completely lose control. And then in Acts 23, 11, we're going to read a promise that God gives. God promised that Paul would get to testify in Rome. Now what's important about this promise, remember how we talked about God doing what God does? So Paul can do what he does, which was what God had instructed him to do, that God was meeting the needs and providing what Paul needed. Well, this is another time where Paul, who's been arrested, been threatened with scourging, he's, he's just on the brink of the Jews getting him. 
They're trying to kill him. They're very openly trying to kill him. He's in Roman custody, and he could be thinking, man, this is probably the end. There's, there's no good way for this to go. And then God steps in, and he promises him that he's going to get to Rome. And that was his goal. You're going to get to Rome. So what Paul learned from that is what the Jews are trying to do, that's going to fail. Whatever the Romans are doing, they're not going to kill me. They're not going to do anything because I'm going to Rome. So A and B in your notes, Paul takes this promise and runs with it. Now all of a sudden, his decisions are made in the confidence that God will take him to Rome. We're going to see this played out later in the, in, the, in the scripture. And Paul knows his time is not short, and then he's not in danger. So it gives him confidence to speak and to act, and we're going to see that happening. So I wanted to point that out today. In Acts 23, 12 through 15, some Jews conspire to kill Paul. It's going to be interesting. There's 40 Jewish men who are going to get together, and, and in this bravado that they create among themselves, they say, we vow before God that we will not eat or sleep until Paul is dead, which was great because they planned to kill him in the morning. So they, they weren't going to eat or sleep until Paul was dead in the morning, but they didn't put in the morning part in their vow. They vowed they would not eat or sleep until Paul was dead. And we have no idea what happened to them because God stepped in and made that not happen. But again, we have a conspiracy to kill Paul. More Jewish people trying to kill Paul. In verse 16 through 22, we read about Paul's nephew. We, we never knew that Paul had a sister before. Now all of a sudden we find out he's got a sister, and his sister had a son, that's his nephew. The nephew overhears the conversation. He comes and tells Paul. Paul sends him to the commander. The commander takes care of it. So Paul's nephew steps in to stop this plot. And then in 23 through 35, Paul is saved from the Jews and sent to Caesarea. We'll read about that. Uh, so his case could be heard before Governor Felix. That's the next step in line here. And this is all happening, remember, because this commander can't let this go. Why is the Roman commander so concerned about what these people are so mad about with Paul? What difference does it make to him? If he had just in the beginning said, I can take care of this, I'm going to kill a bunch of you, and I'm going to kill Paul, it's over. It would have been over, and the Romans would have been happy. But he could not let this go. He has tried two or three times now to find out why the Jews are so mad. And he's still not going to let it go. Now he's like, I'm not going to let these Jews get what they want. I'm going to send Paul to Felix. And that's kind of what happens. So that's the narrative we're going to read today. We don't really get that far in the process. We're on our way to a trial. We're on our way to Rome. But we'll only make it one city to Caesarea. And these are the circumstances that got him here. And I want you to know the Jews are still trying to kill him. They're still telling lies about him. The Romans are still protecting him. And God is making it be paving the path for Paul to get where he needs to go. So let's, let's look at the, the title under notice. Notice these things. I kind of just said most of these. The Jews are still lying. The Jews are still lying about Paul and trying to kill him. It hasn't changed. Number two, some Jews took it upon themselves to set up an ambush, hoping to kill Paul while he's on his way to Caesarea. Actually, he was on his way to the, the gathering so that's kind of an error in your notes there. They're not inspired, by the way. Close, but not quite. Number three, uh, this is kind of important. God is, and I, tried, I didn't know what word to choose. I wanted to make it strong enough. I wanted to get the idea. So write the word dismantling. God is still dismantling the evil plans of the Jews at every turn. 
whatever they came up with, every time they come up with a plan, every time they figure, we're going to get him this time, God just very simply removes Paul from the situation, gives him an escape. By miracle or by circumstance or by the Romans, this time he used his nephew. God is dismantling the evil plans. Number four, God is still using the very unlikely Roman commander and soldiers to protect Paul from the Jews who want to kill him. We're going to find out as we read that they li- the, on his way to Caesarea, they literally give him 470 Roman soldiers to protect him. 470 Roman soldiers to protect one guy, Paul, from 40 Jewish religious zealots. So even a little overkill, God's like, we're going to give you a lot of protection. And then number five, God gives Paul hope and encouragement by promising Paul he will testify in Rome. Just when Paul might start questioning what's going to happen, God says, no, this is the plan. You're going to go to Rome. Now with that information in mind, I want to read the passage, make a few more comments probably, but I want, you to, I want you to look for those things and see those things. And since you have the information, listen for the subtlety of what God is doing and, and how it all plays out. So here's chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. Now when he says straight at the Sanhedrin, this is like me standing up here looking at you. It's not me standing in the back talking to a couple people. It, it's not... It's not saying you should say this or you should. It's Paul right up front, getting up front, putting himself in the spotlight, and he says to the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, which has at some level the power to probably kill him at this point in time, and he says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. I have fulfilled my duty to God. He knows he's there because they think he's a heretic. They think he blasphemes. They think he's unfit and he's not representing God. He knows that's why he's there. So the first thing he says is, brothers, really, he says, I have nothing to hide and I've done exactly what God asked me to do. I I have nothing to hide and I've done exactly what God asked me to do. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. Verse 2. At this, at that statement, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Whitewashed wall. Whitewashed wall meaning looking really good on the outside, but what you're covering up is a big mess, a a, a pile of junk. You look good on the outside, but on the inside it's a big mess. Everything's not right. It says God will strike you like... You know, God will get even, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He calls him on his hypocrisy, names it. And I I don't think he said it nicely. Okay, call call him a whitewashed wall, you hypocrite. Verse 4, those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written. In other words, he's saying, I didn't know, and you're right. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And, and he had a position of ruling over the people. He was the very person holding the office that that was written about. 
So he said, I didn't know. I, I'm sorry. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. This knowledge was important because Paul had been one of them. He was a Pharisee. He had sat in these proceedings. He knew what would get them excited, and he knew what would cause them to fight amongst themselves. So he called out into the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Which is true. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. So, that was the main thing that divided them and caused them to hate each other. That was the, the foundational difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they built everything off of that. And so that was the dispute, and so they immediately start arguing. Verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, which is interesting because they did not like him. They thought they had lots wrong, but this was not the subject. So they're saying, there's nothing wrong with this man. What if the spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander, this is the Roman commander, was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away, take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So he took him back from the Jews. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The same thing you did in Jerusalem, you're going to get to do in Rome. So take courage. Don't be afraid. I'm going to get you there. That's the promise. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So you, you tell him we need to talk to Paul again and, and we'll ambush him on the way. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him, took him to, to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready, and get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers. This is 200 foot soldiers. Get ready a detachment of 200 foot soldiers. Like, oh yeah? You got 40 guys? They're going to ambush my prisoner? Well, I got 200 guys. 
And my guys are trained and they carry swords. Yeah, that would have been enough, right? But he adds 70 horsemen. So 70 cavalrymen. 70 Roman soldiers on horseback. They alone would have been enough, but they're added to the foot soldiers. And then 200 spearmen. So 200 guys with spears. So we have 470 Roman soldiers assigned to protect Paul as he leaves the city and heads to Governor Felix to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. So we're going to leave tonight. They want to they attack us in the morning. We're going to leave tonight. And they've got 40 guys. I'm sending 470 guys. Verse 24. Provide horses for, for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. We're not even going to walk. We're going to, this is going to go, we're going to go fast. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to, the, to his excellency, Governor Felix. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. This soldier is still trying to get to the bottom of this. Verse 31, so the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night. They brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him. When they arrived to the barracks, well, they let the cavalry go on while they returned to the barracks, sorry. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So the, the narrative just continues. We've read a chapter. We don't know a lot. It's, it's all plot, details, plot going on. They're trying to kill Paul. God's protecting Paul. What are we going to learn from this? We've, we've heard this story before. Different details, different people, same story. We've been through this. But, so what are we going to learn? Turn your paper over, and let's look at where it says application. This is not a new application, but I want to I zero in on it again. The blank, I want you to write the word God. God provides faith, protection, power, wisdom, and provision equal to the amount necessary to fulfill his directives and accomplish his ministry. What's the new part there? He provides these things in amounts equal to what's required. So Paul was on a big mission. He had huge enemies. The Jews didn't like him. The Romans weren't really all that excited about him. He's got all these things he's trying to do, and he needed... Faith, protection, power, wisdom, and provision. And what did God give him? He gave him faith, protection, power, wisdom, and provision. He gave him uh, special messages from the Holy Spirit. He gave him special circumstances. He gave him a Roman commander that just wouldn't let things go. He set him up to be able to do what he needed to do. Uh, I said it again a little bit differently, more centering on Paul. God provided for Paul exactly what he needed to reach Rome and to fulfill his greater calling given to him by God, which will be writing several books of the New Testament. 
So God provided for Paul exactly what he needed. For example, A, citizenship to avoid a scourging. Not too long ago, we read about that. Uh, confusion to disrupt the corrupt proceedings of the Sanhedrin. God allowed them to fight amongst themselves so Paul could, could be ushered out. Soldiers to protect him from the angry Jewish mobs. It was the soldiers who came and got him by force and brought him back to the barracks. A nephew to learn of, his, of a murderous plot. Uh, a young boy or a young man that, that was not seen yet heard and was able to go and, and, un, 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 and tell what the plot was. And he provided a Roman commander determined to get to the bottom of this. And in that process provided 470 soldiers to escort him. God was doing what God does so that Paul can do what he called Paul to do. So this is what we've seen over and over and over again all through the book of Acts. We see God providing the necessary means. Now this is a huge story, so we see God doing exciting things. And sometimes that's hard to translate back into our world. Because none of us have been called to go to Rome. None of us are writing books of the New Testament. None of us are, are the, the first ambassador to the Gentiles. So maybe we have a hard time relating. So I want to give an application of the application, continuing on in your notes. This is what we need to take from this. In our lives, number one, God does not call you to do or be anything that he will not then provide the means by which you are to be successful. He will not ask you to make a decision. He will not ask you to take on a ministry. He will not ask you to, to become a pastor or a missionary or a small group leader. He will not ask you to host a dinner. He will not ask you to volunteer anywhere. That he's not also going to provide the means. You might say, I don't have time. Well, God will provide the time if you follow his leading. You might say, I don't have the resources. God will provide the resources. You might say, I don't have the knowledge. God will provide the training. I don't have the help. God will provide the help. I remember when, when Peggy uh, sat right up here and we talked about small groups one Sunday. And, and Peggy, the next week or so, she goes, she's just come and says, Pastor, I, I really want to start a small group, but I don't know what to do. I said, well, Peggy, what, what do you have in mind? She goes, well, I, I just like to have people over to my house and... and, and I don't know what to do from there. I said, well, okay, Peggy, we'll start inviting, start inviting the people. Start inviting some ladies over to your house. And when you get there, take prayer requests and pray together. A and that's all you have to do. And, and then if there's more to do, God will show you. Well, pretty soon they had a, a, a weekly Bible study going on. They had a leader who was teaching. A and they had opportunity to ask questions they didn't have opportunities to ask before. And it was in Peggy's house, and she got the joy of hosting it. When she couldn't really go anywhere without help. He, she invited people to her home. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to do it. She took what she had, moved with it, and then God provided the rest. These are the things God likes to do. Hey, we want to we start an Awana ministry. Great, how do we do that? Well, let's find out. We want to start youth group. How do we do that? Let's find out. We want to start Sunday school. How do we do that? Let's move forward. God's calling me for this or that. You know, we have missionaries that we support. And, and you may not realize, I hope maybe you do, I'm going to tell you, all the missionaries that we support were at one time sitting in pews just like you in a church. They were sitting in pews or chairs in a church, and God said somehow to them, to their heart, hey, you know what, i got plans for you. 
And they probably dismissed it. And then God said again, hey, I have plans for you. And they probably dismissed it. And then God said, you know what? I have plans for you. Did you hear the missionary share? Did you hear what the pastor said? Did you, did you listen this morning when you read your Bible? I have plans for you. By the way, my plans involve such and such. And, and then that sinks in a little bit, and then it sinks in a little bit. And one day, sitting in a pew, they said to themselves, wow, you know what? I think God's calling me to be a missionary. And then they started taking steps. And every one of them will share the testimony that they didn't have the means, they didn't have the education, they didn't have the biblical knowledge, but they grew in each of these areas that God provided financially, and then they wound up on the mission field. That's how pastors become pastors. We're sitting in, in pews, we're learning God's word, we're, we're worshiping, and then God puts a thought in your head. Hey, you know what, you should do this. Nah. Yeah, you should, you should do this. Nah. Well, I'm going to keep saying it until you agree. Okay, go ahead and try. And then one day, you know what? I think, I think God wants me to be a pastor. How do you do that? Well, you've got to go to school. You've got to get trained. You've got you to get some experience. And then all of a sudden, here you are as a pastor. No one, no one ever, like God saved, I'm sure someone has, but I'm going to say it because I want to make a point. No one ever got saved in that day said, I, I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to be a missionary. I got saved this afternoon, and now I'm going to go to Bible school and be a pastor. I got saved today, and I've already got a ministry in mind. No, it doesn't, doesn't normally work that way. We grow into these things. And if, if God calls you to something, he'll provide whatever it takes to accomplish it. God never calls you and then doesn't provide the means for success. If you're obedient, he'll provide. Here's a couple of scriptures. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now you probably know that in that context, he's talking about food, clothes, and shelter. He's saying, to the crowd who daily, weekly, and annually have to worry or, or have conversations or make plans, what are we going to eat this week? What are we going to wear this week? What are we going to do for work this week? What if the rain doesn't come? What if the sun doesn't shine? In a culture where they lived day by day, month by month, year by year, he said to them, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He literally said to them, worry about your relationship with God and let God worry about your relationship with the world. You worry about God, God will take care of food, clothes, and shelter. He'll give you what you need. Now, there's some lessons to be learned about what God thinks you need and what you think you need, but he says, put me first and I'll take care of you. That's a principle that we can apply to, to what we're talking about. Our obedience in following God brings about his provision. So when Paul said, I will go to the Gentiles, I will go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do, God started going, okay, I'm going to start taking care of you. I'm going to give you an offering. I'm going to give you favor with the Romans. I'm going to get you out of this city, into that city. We're going to do all these things. The principle is God providing for what he's called. So Paul was called, God provided. When we're called, God will provide. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, 
so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, if you read this passage and you take it in context, he's talking about generosity in their giving. He says, he says, plan ahead for your giving. Be generous in your giving. And if you're generous in your giving, then, then at all times, in all, in all things, in all times, you will have all that you need and you'll abound in every good work. The principle is, give like I want you to give and, and I will return what you need. I will give you what you need. I will bless you. The principle is that obeying God brings about God's provision. The principle can be applied in all circumstances. And I don't know, I don't know if anyone's being called to anything. I know that we're all being called to certain things. Maybe, maybe the big calling in your, in your life is to actually have a gospel conversation with someone you've been praying for. Or, or actually invite someone to church that you've been praying for. And God's saying, do it. And you're like, I never see him. But next time I see him, I'll invite him. I bet in the next day or two, you miraculously run into them somewhere. The grocery store, the front yard, something like that. God will provide the means when you're willing to follow through. Second application, number two. There is no safer place to be than in the center of the will of God. There's a movie called Last Flight Out. I noted it there in parentheses in your, in your notes. I put it there because I want you to go find it and I want you to watch it. It's, it's an old Christian movie. There's no famous actors in it. It's about uh, a, a guy who, who goes into a, 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 a country where there's a, a drug lord and his ex-girlfriend is in danger. She's being a missionary there. And she's in danger because his drug lord is taking over the country. And her father pays this guy to go get her. Well, he gets there, and he meets these missionaries. And they're like, we're not leaving. So you have to leave. It's dangerous here. No, we're not leaving. And they say, there's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. So they're saying to this guy, we're just as safe right here among the the, the armed militia of the drug lord as we would be in your airplane flying home. We're just as safe right here. And, and so then he gets caught up into it. They do all these things. They end up rescuing people that were taken captive. They deliver their Samaritan shoeboxes. They're involved in all this stuff. And then at the last minute, this missionary doesn't get to get on the plane when they fly away. So the hero of the story flies back to get this one guy he lands, he runs out, jumps in the airplane, they take off, and, and the guy in the front is celebrating, we, we got out, everybody's safe, and he turns around, and this guy had been shot, and he's bleeding, and, and we all know he's going to die. And then the guy says it again. He says, you know what? There's no safer place to be than in the center of the will of God. The first time he was saying, God will protect us when we go. The second time he was saying, this bullet wound is exactly what God wanted me to have. This is the center of God's will, and I am happy to be right here. I'm going to go meet my, meet my maker. I'm going to go be with God in heaven. The same line had two different meanings. And, and, and we, there is no better safe or place for us to be than the center of the will of God. Paul was basically under Roman arrest, and they kept giving him back to the Jews, and the Jews kept trying to kill him, and then he kept winding, back, winding up back with the Romans. And I'm sure that didn't look very promising. Like, out of the fire into the fire, right? Which is better, the Jews or the Romans? Who am I gonna, who's going to take care of me? Who's going to get me? 
And, and God's saying, uh, you know, in hindsight, we look back and God was actually protecting him. He put him in, in, in the charge of the Romans to get him to Rome. God knew exactly what was happening. And many times we look at our circumstances and we say, this can't be God's will. This is not working like it's supposed to. This is not good news. This, something is going wrong. And God might actually be looking down from heaven going, oh, hold on, hold your horse. This is exactly what needs to happen because if you're not there today, you're not going to wind up there tomorrow. And I need you there tomorrow, so I put you here today. And this is uncomfortable, and it hurts, and, and you don't like it, but you're going to appreciate it when you get here. And God has a plan at work. I don't think Paul knew what the plan was. But Paul was in the plan, and God was working the plan. And at some point in time, I think Paul, when he's writing these letters, said, I got it. This was all part of God's plan because I needed to write this stuff down and not just keep telling everybody. And he wrote it down and it became our scripture. There's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. And I'll just add to that, you may not know where the center of God's will is except step by step as he takes you there. Number three, God's plans are most certainly bigger than our plans. God's plans are most certainly bigger than our plans. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 12, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you and, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's saying to them, you're going to be 70 years in Babylon. Okay, you're going to be 70 years in Babylon. And then he says, these are my plans. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This 70 years in Babylon is for the purpose of prospering you and not harming you. I have plans. You have hope and a future. I plan to give you hope and a future. I'm putting you in Babylon for 70 years as captives so that you have a future and you have a hope. In other words, nation of Israel, if I leave you on your own, you will destroy yourselves from the inside out and then you will become nobody and nothing and I won't have a people. So I'm sending you to Babylon where you will be captive and protected. And in Babylon, you're going to grow up and you're going to learn things, and you're going to be more dedicated to me when you leave Babylon than you were when you got here. And then you're going to come back, and we're going to reestablish Israel. Because I need an established Israel for when the Messiah shows up. And that's exactly what happened. God fulfilled his promise. The principle. Sometimes God does things that don't make sense to us because he has a greater purpose in mind. His plans are most certainly bigger than ours. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. God's plans are not thwarted. They are not sabotaged. They do not fall short. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will get the work done. He will grow you up. He will create in you the person you need to be. Now, all of these 
All of these together fall into this last statement. These principles apply to opportunities, setbacks, health crises, finances, skills, partnerships, resources, add anything else you want in there, relationships. God works at all times, in all circumstances, in all places, always for his glory and your benefit. God works at all times, in all circumstances, in all places, always for his glory and your benefit. It's always going to work out that way. He will be glorified. You will be better off. If, if you die from whatever happens and you wind up in heaven with Christ, guess what? You're better off. If someone gets saved because you suffered, guess what? You're better off. And so are they. God works in all times, in all circumstances, in all places, always for his glory and your benefit. So what do we do with this? We accept it. We embrace it. And when the stuff happens in our life, we take on the attitude of God's in charge. He's going to use this. And we're all going to be better off in the end. So I can accept it. And then we keep on moving. That's the only attitude we can have. We see it illustrated in Paul. You know, the, the Jews got me. That's fine. The Romans got me. That's fine. God promised I'm going to wind up in Rome. I'm going to get to Rome. When I'm in Rome, then we'll start figuring out what's next. What's next? God has a plan. You're going to write basically the New Testament. So we see illustrated in Acts through Paul these principles. And I hope these principles become a filter that you evaluate your own life circumstances through. And you start to look for, okay, God, how are you working? What are you doing? What am I supposed to learn? What do you want me to do next? Where do you want me to serve? Oh, that's scary. Okay. I know that you'll provide whatever I need, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Uh, I know that there's a risk here, but you've always provided, and you promised you'll provide. You're going to continue to provide. I'm, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do it your way. And that's the filter you've got to work through. So we're going to pray, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit take it from there because he's a better preacher than I am. Father God, thank you so much for this extended, extended, extensive example that Paul keeps giving us of how you work in the life of those you've called, how you provide everything we need in a variety of ways, and that no, no need is unseen and no need is unmet. And only if we could step out in faith like Paul has done to embrace your will and follow you wherever you take us, knowing that you'll provide for us as well. That as, as we respond to you, you in turn respond to us, and you take care of us. And even if the, the caring for us doesn't look like what we thought it would, even in that we can be assured that it's according to your plan. So help us to think in these terms, and help us to live our life in this way, and help us to, to know you and serve you better. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.